Well, this morning we pick up where we left off last time. We're working our way through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We begin in Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. Last time we imagined ourselves as journalists, reporters or onlookers to this entire scene being played out. Our task? To report on the Passover in Jerusalem. You may recall that this mission stalled. We deviated from our goal, or so it seemed. We were intrigued by an event taking place in town and became sidetracked. You witnessed a Roman trial. There was a prosecutor there who was also the judge, a bounty of witnesses, envious witnesses, angry witnesses, a a woman who had a bad dream. In the end, the innocent was condemned and the guilty set free. You may recall then following his sentencing, moving to a place called the Praetorium, and then following a parade, better called a death march, now standing atop a hilltop called Golgotha. And before you this morning hangs a sign above a man on a cross which reads, King of the Jews. Two others now receive a similar fate. Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Well, I want to look at our text this morning in three main sections, and these are the final moments of Jesus, so we see some final elements in his life. The first, you've detected it, is a final scorn. It's a final scorn. Throughout his ministry, Jesus received scorn. He now receives it yet again. Three groups hurl insults at Jesus. In verse 39, there are, quote, those passing by. Presently, in the states, there are 24 states still implementing a death penalty. The death penalty comes by electrocution or by lethal injection. But these sentences are carried out indoors, far from public spectacle. Well, not so with Roman execution. Jesus did not die in private. Crowds of people passed by his execution. And this was intentional. Rome does this on purpose. Many believe that Golgotha, the location of the crosses, it sat along a public road not far at all from the city of Jerusalem. 
And remember, it's Passover, uh, an important Jewish festival. Many Jews are passing along on the road. And in verse 39, those passing by were hurling abuse. And their target was Jesus, Jesus being deity. Matthew uses a word that you will recognize, a Greek word, blasphemeo. They blasphemed Jesus. Verse 40 has filled in some of their comments. Their comment recalls something that Jesus said. It was a few years ago, but he had cleared the temple of money changers. And the Jewish leaders came up to him asking, what what sign do you give to show us your authority? And he replies, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they thought Jesus referred to the temple building, but he referred to what? His body, himself. And at this point, hanging upon the cross, it looked like a failed prophecy. And you and I know the ending. We know that it's moments away from fulfillment. I find it interesting that that exchange took place a few years prior. They must have been stewing on this, carrying this around in their heart. And how it comes out again. You may recall a few hours ago in in the Jewish trial, they brought this charge against him. And notice as well in these verses that that they're taking these words and they're they're functioning like Satan did. Back in Matthew 4, in, in two of his temptations, there were three. Satan delivered. And what did he open with? If you are the Son of God. Jesus has heard all of this before. He didn't give in to temptation then, and he's not going to now. In verse 41, there's a second group. The Jewish leaders mock Jesus. You observe them called out almost specifically. Chief priests, scribes, elders, each group mentioned by name. It's as though Matthew wants us to know that the entire religious establishment They were all part of this crucifixion. Luke records, another gospel author, that they were sneering at him. They're turning up their noses, they're scoffing, they're deriding Jesus as he hangs on the cross. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. What profanity. You know, it's one thing to be misinformed about Jesus or misguided or ignorant. It's another thing to be agnostic or to be atheist about Jesus. But here, to go on the offensive, to set foot, to intend to attack Jesus, this is just a whole new level of darkness. And this is happening by the religious establishment nonetheless. In verse 42, they blame Jesus for their unbelief. Well, let me tell you, the fact that Jesus remained on the cross, that proved his deity. It proved that he was the Son of God. It proved his kingship. It proved that he trusted God. Because he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He will save others. He will find God's delight to be not only abundant and satisfying, but, full, but completely perfect. And make no mistake about it either. You know, 
Jesus could have come down from that cross. It was not the nails or the soldiers that kept him there. It was faithful obedience to God and a loving mercy for you. Because if Jesus did come down, he would have saved himself. But who wouldn't he save? You and me. He willingly bore this indescribable pain. And he willingly bore this agonizing torment so that you and I, so that we don't have to. Now you notice in our account there's a third group. It's a pair, two. Two more taunt Jesus. Two robbers insult him. In verse 38, they are crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, I'm not sure if if Rome, it doesn't appear to me that Rome crucified people for the penalty of robbery. Typically, the crucifixions were reserved for the worst of the worst. The word robber can also mean insurrectionist or guerrilla. John, in his gospel, uses this word to describe Barabbas. And the thinking here is that Barabbas, the man who was set free, Jesus taking his place... He was to be crucified along with these other two men. And so all three of them were involved in some kind of insurrection. And Jesus would literally take his place on the cross, if that's true. In verse 40, they're insulting him with the same words. Matthew here indicates that they're repeating the taunts that others are delivering, whether it's the religious establishment or it's those people passing by. These two men get in on it as well. But that afternoon, as the hours on the cross, as they slowly passed, one of these men had a heart change. And Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43, record this. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today, you shall be with me in paradise. That's a special account right there. And I don't want to move forward before we take some time with it. Because in this account, I'd say there are at least three simple faith realities that we can glean. I mean, here, here is a man upon a cross who can do nothing for his own salvation. You and I know that. I think we believe that. We say it. There's a tendency to to try to do something to work that out. This man could literally do nothing. And first of all, a simple faith restores. Here is one criminal who possessed a simple faith in Jesus. What did he believe? Well, he believed, first of all, that he was a sinner. He says, we are suffering justly. He sees a gap in verse 41 between who he is and between who Jesus is. That we are fallen, sinful creatures, and Jesus is a holy, perfect God. He sees, secondly, that Jesus is a king who reigns. 
This criminal believed that Jesus is who he says he is. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's a statement that the criminal believes that Jesus possessed power, that Jesus exercised sovereignty, that Jesus kept promises, that Jesus extended compassion. This is a man who was saved by faith alone. The reformers said that saving faith is never alone, that there's something that comes along with saving faith. A simple faith response, secondly. A simple faith response. Not only does simple faith restore us to God, but a simple faith response to that restoration. A genuine faith is going to impact our mind and our heart and our will. Even this dying criminal, mark this, even this dying criminal has a conduct that goes with faith. What does he do? He defends Jesus. He takes a stand for Jesus. Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, he asks? He tells the other criminal essentially to shut his mouth. Don't insult God. He calls him to fear God. You see, simple faith shows itself in works. And even this criminal, this man upon the cross, he had opportunity to prove his faith by his works. Well, lastly, simple faith redeems. You need to know this morning, believer, that when you die, in the moment that you pass from this life into the next, the words that Jesus said to this man are true for you. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The body of our Lord Jesus remained in a tomb, in a grave for three days, but Jesus did not go to hell. Jesus went to paradise. He went to heaven. And so did this criminal by simple faith. In his final hours, the Lord was surrounded by many different people. And sadly, almost all of them were not there to to comfort him, to give him peace. They were there to mock him and to taunt him. But despite all that, there was still this one who, who turned and trusted in him. Well, in our account this morning, the sand in the hourglass continues to erode. In verses 45 to 50, we see our Lord's final hours. We just saw his, his final scorn. The last time people would scorn and taunt the Lord, we now see his final hours in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And there's verse 45 there. It functions like an umbrella over the entire passage. Uh, Almost literally does it do that. It's a darkness that covers everything. Uh, Mark in his gospel in chapter 15 indicates it was the third hour when Jesus was crucified. That's about 9 a.m., Um, In this time, with their record-keeping, they didn't keep time as closely and tightly as we do. 
So it's right around this time. And it's by the sixth hour. Remember, as a reporter, you're there. You're taking in three crosses at this time. There's the scorn. There's the bustle of Passover celebration. All of this traffic, all of these things are taking place. And then darkness falls until the ninth hour. It's three hours of darkness. That's noon to 3 p.m. And standing there, you may witness a, a frantic search for torches. No one expected this event. You may notice great confusion along the roadway. You may even notice just bewilderment as people stare up in the sky wondering what's happening. All kinds of theories have been put forth for this darkness. Some believe it was a heavy cloud cover. Some believe it was volcanic dust. Some believe it was something called a Sirocco. That's a, a, a hot desert wind with sand. Some believe it was an eclipse. Some believe the scribes who translated this made an error. Some believe it was the creation of some literary genius. But I think that you and I should treat this darkness as a supernatural phenomenon that God did. Maybe he used the elements of creation. Maybe he intervened in such a way to bring this about. Maybe he didn't. But we notice here that in this darkness, the Lord is experiencing a final physical agony as well as, as a final spiritual agony. Now, we don't know exactly what happens in these three hours. If I'm reading the gospel accounts correctly, most of them aren't talking a lot about these three hours. It tends to be the events leading up to them and then the events after. But we do know that verse 46, in a way, it relates to it. It gives us some clue or some insight. Jesus asks, he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he quotes Psalm 22. And I contend that in this moment, Jesus experiences a, a spiritual agony that far surpasses his physical agony. I just want you to take a moment and imagine his pain, the pain of crucifixion, as we reviewed it last Sunday. And then try to imagine a pain in your soul worse than that. I believe that was the experience of Jesus in this moment. I think some, some separation happened between God the Son and God the Father. It's profound. There's something mysterious about this. I don't think we can go very far with it at all. But, but the wrath of God is poured out upon him. And some passages in the Bible speak to this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It even begs a question, how, how does God make Jesus to be sin? In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. In verse 10, Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And I believe that when Jesus paid the price for our sins, a, a canyon emerged. Somehow, in some way, between Jesus, the Son, and, and God, the Father. I mean, this is an event that has never happened before and has never happened since. This perfect unity, this divine fellowship, something happened there. We can't grasp exactly what this experience is. But we do know something about God and something about sin. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, 
The prophet writes, your eyes, God, are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look at wickedness with favor. You see, God is pure and God is holy. He cannot look upon sin. And he's not going to permit any sin in his presence. He, he cannot. And it may feel a little odd to say that, as though God cannot do something. Though it's a, some kind of weakness. But, but that God cannot look upon sin, that's his strength. You see, God, God is pure. It's part of what makes him God. He's separate. He's different than we are. I think these three hours of darkness at the cross, I, I believe they stand as an illustration of hell. There's an agony of body, something happening physically and emotionally. There's a shame that he bore. There's a mental agony of this entire experience. There's an absence of God, and a torment of the soul. You see, Jesus Christ paid the price for sin so that you don't have to. What he did on the cross is something you don't have to do if you believe in him. I would say that God, or he's been forsaken by God so that you and I can be welcomed by God. You and I don't need to live in agony in eternity. I consider what he said to the thief. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is that offer not much greater than the alternative? It's simple faith returning to that thief. Believe you are a sinner. Believe Jesus died for your sin. And then put off a life that shows you do. You see, Jesus suffered and he died for you. And he suffered and he died for me. And he enters his final moments of that suffering. And this darkness, it begins to lift. And he cries out to God. I think his cry to God is misunderstood. The, the Hebrew word for Eli is very similar to Elijah. And if he is exhausted, it would, it, it would produce some kind of a slur as he tried to talk and, and get out words. I, I read them smoothly here, but these men are gasping for air to try to talk. Remember, every time he tried to take an exhale, he had to pull themselves up by their hands and their feet to, to let that air out. I don't know how anybody could possibly talk in that condition, let alone these men on the cross. In verse 49, some want any help to Jesus withheld. Let's see if Elijah comes. There was a superstition of the time that as Elijah was taken up to heaven without dying, so he could come back and help out people in need. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit to harmonize the Gospels. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, creation responds to this. And we saw the, the final scorn of people. And we saw the final hours of Jesus. And we now see the final impacts of his life. In verses 51 through 54, here's the final impact. In verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. 
Now the centurion, those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. In these few verses, we see the impact of the Lord and his death. It impacts worship. It impacts creation. and It impacts death itself. Notice those first few words of verse 51. They're meant to grab our attention. And they do when you consider these events. It's as though they grab a hold of us and say, hey, look, look at what's happening. There's this cosmic ripple effect that happened when, when Jesus breathed his last. Matthew first points us to the temple. I want you to digest every phrase of verse 51, the veil of the temple. There's a massive curtain that stood in the temple, 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. It separated an area called the the Holy of Holies from just the holy place. In that Holy of Holies, it was a special place where the, the presence of God dwelt. No one was permitted to go in there. Before Jerusalem fell to Babylon, which happened years before our account today, in there sat the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments inside. No one could enter this space. And in fact, to walk into that temple and to behold that curtain as it hung there, it was a reminder to you that there is a great separation between God who is holy and we who are not. The curtain, the veil, was torn in two. One day, each year, is the Day of Atonement. And on that day, each year, the the, the tradition is for the high priest to go into that veil. One person, one time, each year. He would go in there, and in this time, he would offer incense on the stone where the, the ark used to sit. And no priest approached this lightly. Seven days prior, he took a residence in the temple, sealing himself off. And while he was in there, he practiced, practiced, practiced all the rituals he did when he went behind that veil. There could be no imperfection, everything done perfectly. Men were then assigned on the night before to come in and keep him awake for an all-night vigil. And the morning of, he bathed five times and did ten different hand washings. He then went over and he donned his priestly robe. And in Acts chapter 28, the instruction was given for the priestly robe to have bells hemmed in around the bottom. And tradition says that by this time, a rope was also tied to the ankle of the priest as he went into the veil with his bells and robe on. He stepped inside the veil. Because if you don't hear the bells ringing on the other side of the veil anymore, you pull that rope and you bring out your dead priest. No imperfection was tolerated. Now some here this morning may wipe their brow and say, praise God, he is not that way anymore. But I can assure you that God is just as holy today as he was then. And here's the difference. The man hanging on the cross. It's because of Jesus that we don't have to do that. And it's because of Jesus that we do not die when we enter the presence of God. And it's because of Jesus that we can enter God with boldness and confident access. That's how we can go into his throne room. You see, now, through Jesus, 
All of you are priests through him. And you have free, full, unfettered access to God wherever you are. Whenever you call upon him. All may approach God through Jesus. The last phrase I want you to see in that verse. This is the description of the tear. It was torn from top to bottom. That is to say that God did this. No more veil. No more curtain. It was not taken down by men. It was taken down by God. And let me add this. It is foolish to try to sew it up. Any approach to God other than Jesus Christ is an attempt to sew up that veil, whether it's works or rituals or good intentions or whatever it is. Only can we go through Jesus to access God. To do anything else is to try to sew up a veil that's been torn forever. I want you to see secondly here that the Lord's death impacts not only worship, but also creation. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, writing of Jesus. By him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Verse verse 51 now makes sense. The entire earth shook. Creation reverberated. The death of Jesus produced an earthquake. It split rocks, and it opened tombs. The Lord's death impacts death. You know, we might be reading along, and we come across these open tombs. It happened by an earthquake. Okay, we're tracking. But on that Sunday, Old Testament believers walk out of these tombs into Jerusalem, and they appear to many people. Now, I realize what I just said there is going to generate more questions than it answers. But I can't take you any further than the text does. I'd say, in summary, the death of Jesus makes resurrection possible. So we review here as we conclude, the death of Jesus makes redemption possible. You notice the centurion in verse 54, he and others with him, I'm assuming that's, that's the guard. When they saw the earthquake, when they saw these things happening, they became very frightened and exclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, I don't know if that's a profession of faith, but it is a fact. It's a wonderful summary of what's been happening through Matthew's gospel as we've walked our way through it. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God many times in Matthew's gospel. God has declared it twice from heaven. Demons screamed it. Jesus affirmed it. Disciples spoke it. Peter declared it. And the religious leaders, when they contemplated it, they hated it. Let me tell you, journalist, you've had quite a day in Jerusalem. You were sent to report on the Passover, and you found yourself witness to a crucifixion. And just when the the big story seemed hopeless, you're bumbling around the streets of the city, all these people carrying their lambs, and they're bleeding and screaming. You're standing in Golgotha in the dark, wondering how you got this assignment. What you discover is the story. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. Every Passover, since it was instituted, is a rehearsal of what it was. 
Way back when, in the book of Exodus, in Egypt, in bondage, in slavery, the Israelites lived through nine plagues. That ninth plague, by the way, was darkness. In Exodus chapter 10, it was a darkness which may be felt. Jesus felt a darkness. It was a darkness that hangs over the entire human race. And then there was a tenth plague. And God declared in that plague that the death of every firstborn would come about. In chapter 11 of Exodus, Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. Can anyone escape this? How do we escape this, Lord? And he gives them a lamb. Now, the Israelites had to provide that lamb, but God provides a lamb. He would tell them to select a lamb without blemish. And Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, says 1 Peter chapter 2. God had them slaughter the lamb. After all, a sacrifice must be made. In Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. This morning we read that he yielded up his spirit. God would have them place the blood of that lamb on the wooden doorposts of their homes and the lintel above the door. And in 1 Peter 1, we learned that we were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And those back in that time would receive a Passover. No death would come to that household. The firstborn would survive. And let me tell you this morning, believer, the Bible says that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The blood of the lamb has been sacrificed for you. The blood has been spread across the doorpost and there is a Passover for you. That's quite a headline. That's a story that not only informs, but that's a story that transforms. That Jesus Christ died as your Passover lamb. What grace, what love, and what sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And we thank you for leaving us bread and wine as a way to remember that. We don't deserve the sacrifice or the remembrance of that, but we are grateful for both of those things. And I pray for your people right now, Father, as we enter into this time together, that it would be unifying and that your Holy Spirit would accomplish all your holy will as we partake of these elements, special as they are, pointers to what is to yet to come as we will celebrate again one day with Jesus in the kingdom. But for now, Lord, I pray that you will bless us as we partake. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.